Welcome to Island Baptist Church's Bible study in the parables of Luke, Lesson 7. Get going. We're going to be in uh, Luke 18. And we've already been in Luke 18 for one parable, the first uh, six or eight verses there. And we're going to be following that one, beginning in verse 9, which is where we're going to be going down through verse 14. It's the, it's the parable of the, of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And um, very powerful, very powerful. This is um, not so much one that is misunderstood. Um, I think people get it. it but it, it is the one that flies the most in the face of the thinking of the typical religious person. Uh, these others are, you know, like I said, because of our culture, because of maybe we've not been explained correctly, we have some misinterpretations, misunderstandings. Not totally. I mean, we've not, not, we've not come across any of these that we've been just completely off in left field. Maybe you have been, but most, for most part, no. Um, and this one will be the least among those for sure. But uh, its application to our world is, is the one that's uh, significant. I want to give uh, just one more time uh, credit to those who I use for background study for these studies, and in particular for the study I've been doing here for the, for the parables of Luke, John Maxwell. Anybody? Not John Maxwell. What is his name? McDonald. Hmm? MacArthur. One of those Scottish people. John MacArthur. Uh, love him. Absolutely love him. Don't agree with everything that he, that he says. Not that he doesn't set himself out there to be agreed with. But, but what I appreciate about him greatly is his heart for the scriptures. He absolutely stays resolute. Whatever comes out of the scriptures, that's the way it is. And uh, have a huge respect for anybody that can stay in a single church since the late 60s as pastor in California. Man, got a tremendous respect for him and have been relying heavily upon him for for, uh, for these studies, just because he leaves no stone unturned and really gets down to the brass tacks and just let it, says what it, let it say what it says and not try to read into the text something that our preconceived ideas instead let, let the text uh, if, even cross out our preconceived ideas if that's what's necessary. And that is, that's the way you do scripture. Don't come to scripture with your ideas. You can't help that. Everybody does. But you come with your scriptures if you will, your preconceived ideas of scriptures on your sleeve, ready to dust it off as soon as the scriptures disagrees with uh, what you thought. Disagrees with your denomination, disagrees with your favorite pastor, what your mama taught you, all that stuff. It needs to be okay. It's okay. What you believed all your life and taught in Sunday school, it's okay to say, you know what? I was wrong about that. And I, I, I missed that. And so um, if we come at the scriptures with that kind of attitude, then we're going to we're going to wind up coming up with a, with the correct interpretation. Oh, I forgot to plug in my little my little um, here. Let me do it. This this little jewel. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into to our teaching. Heavenly Father, we are dependent upon you. It's through your Holy Spirit that we understand truth, and um, it's not an intellectual endeavor. It's not something that we can study harder and come up with. And instead, it's downloaded from above. And Lord, so we're asking for that, uh, that power from you through your Holy Spirit to lead us, Lord. We pray you'd help us to set aside our preconceived ideas, 
and um, accept whatever your scripture says. Honor your word, God, because that is what it is. And not fiddle with it in any way, but let it be what it says and how it speaks to us. Teach us today, God, and may you be glorified in that teaching in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, um, as is true in most of the parables, this one is going to be counterintuitive. Maybe not so much for us sitting here, but it very much was counterintuitive for those who first heard it. it. Not not just counterintuitive, uh, I would say, underscore this, outrageous, scandalous, what Jesus says here. Completely antithetical to what they believe there was the idea that Jesus presents here had no place in their theology by the way it has no place in the theology of most people in the world today you're going to find out that the theology of the people of Israel during this time theology of the Pharisee we're going to see in this story is is almost identical to the theology of probably 99% of the people who have any kind of religion in this world today and so, so important that we get this understanding, and for the most part, it's not going to be a new, probably, thinking for you, raised in evangelical churches, raised with the Bible, or even Catholic churches raised with the Bible. It makes no difference. The Bible has, speaks the same to Catholics and Protestants. I don't know if you know that or not. Did you know that? It's the same Bible. <laughs> it's the same Holy Spirit, so we need to let it say what it says. So, so let's read it, and then we'll start from there. Verse 9. And he told this parable... To certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's 99% of the people in this world. Most people think, like I said, if I had a raise of hands in any crowd, how many want to go to heaven? 100%. How many think they're going to heaven? Be the same number. And when you ask them why, they say, because I'm a pretty good person. Oh, really? Here's a parable for you. To those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, as a result, viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the most respected religious person of that day. Of anybody, as far as they're concerned, is going to heaven, it is certainly a Pharisee. And we hear Pharisee, we always, hear, we always want to hiss, you know, we want to spit because we think a bad person. That is not the way they thought. We've got to take that out of our brains. It's gone now. They would say, oh, a Pharisee. Oh, well, this is a righteous man. That's, if anybody belongs in the temple, it is certainly a Pharisee. The person that doesn't belong there is the next guy. And the other attacks gatherer. Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. Mark it carefully. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, and I, I mean... Let me just say this. I'm glad he's not a swindler, an unjust, or an adulterer, even like a task rather. I'm I'm glad he is. I mean, what would you rather? Who are you going to hire here? You're hiring. I'm hiring this guy. We're going to talk about him just a second. But um, Mormons, by the way, you know Mormons make up a large percentage of the CIA. You know why? They're the only ones with clean records. Not the Baptists. Unfortunately. They're doing life better than we do, unfortunately. Uh, if, if you're just going to class them all as religion, theirs is better. They, they, they produce a better person, typically. Sadly so. And, and like I said, the records prove it. 
You know, the typical CIA agent out there, you ask him what, he, what his religion is, he's in Mormon Temple somewhere. Sorry, it's just the way it is. I'm going to find out why. Same reason why you would hide this Pharisee. He could be a Mormon here. That I'm not like other swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Awesome, by the way. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. It's a sign of contrition, of mourning. Saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, notice. The sinner. He really understands it. I'm the one. I'm it. As far as sin has gone, I have knocked it out of the park. I tell you, this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. By the way, that's permanent. Permanent humility. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That also is permanent. It's talking about your eternal, eternal state. So we're, we're making the decision in this life whether I'm going to be permanently humbled or permanently exalted. Which would you rather? Again, it's kind of it's the same question. Would you rather go to hell or would you rather go to heaven? Of course, we know the answer to that question. But um, how do you think that actually happens is, is the big question that Jesus is addressing here. So, so this is completely overturns their thinking and theology. Um, this self-confessed wicked man left the temple justified. And the self-confessed righteous man, not only does he confess it, but the whole society would have said, yeah, this guy is, does all these things. He leaves the temple unforgiven, unjustified. That's exactly what Jesus says here. So, so why is he telling this parable? So let's back up and, and just consider our context. Like I said, we've already looked at the context of verses 1 through 8. Remember what that was back, back in chapter 6, 17? It was the second coming. It was the second coming, and, and so he, he goes straight into this parable of, of the widow with the unjust uh, or the wicked uh, judge to say that we shouldn't give up about praying and that he come back, praying that he restore his kingdom, praying that he restore this world. We shouldn't give up on that prayer. That's what that's about. And he goes straight into this story because this story is related to chapter 17. It's related to the second coming. See, so the whole, whole statement or the whole conversation about his kingdom and the fact that he's coming and the fact that we shouldn't give up also raises the question of who's going to be a part of that kingdom? Who's going to be in it? Who's going to be out of it? And so he throws them, uh, actually, this is, a, this, is a, uh, this is a fastball, but to them it's a really hard curve because they don't see it this way. They thought the one that was going to be in is actually the one that's going to be out, and the one that was going to be out is actually the one that's going to be in. They said, it, it, there is no place in the theology for, for the thing that, he's, that he presents to them here. So he, he's telling this parable so they would know that the big question is, how, how are we made right with God? Since the kingdom is coming and it belongs to God, how can I be a part of the kingdom? It's an important question, maybe the most important question that there is. And the answer that he gives them is a stunner. It's not the man who is good, very carefully, who is justified, but it's the man who knows that he's not good. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The Jews knew God. They knew he was righteous. They knew he demanded perfection. Uh, Be holy as I am holy. They, they knew their scriptures. Uh, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. They knew very well what the psalmist reiterated here in Psalm 143. 
Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. I mean, they know this. They understand this. But they, they've lost a part of it, and we're going to get to that along the way. So, so, so how can this be accomplished? How can be a person be justified? I mean, they should have, they should have known how, how their ancestor uh, Abraham was justified. Remember, how was he reckoned righteous? I mean, how was he given righteousness? It was reckoned to him. What does that mean? It just picking it up and putting it on him. He didn't do anything. He didn't buy it. He didn't earn it. He just believed that God was going to do what he said. That's beautiful. He becomes the father of all who believe. Then he believed the Lord, it says about Abraham, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. They should have known that. I think they did. But they didn't pay attention to it. They should have known the promise of, of Psalm, 1, Psalm 53, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 11. My righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. They should have known this, this one that's coming is going to be taking our iniquities, going to be taking care of our sin. They should have known these things. Uh, they knew they needed to be right with God. Um, but by Jesus' time, they'd walked, by the time Jesus walks the earth, they had gotten away from what the scriptures actually teach. Uh, they had missed it altogether. In fact, they were even to the understanding, they didn't even understand by Jesus' time that the Messiah had to suffer and die. They had not, not, the, not a single thought about that. Didn't believe it. You find Jesus, every time he says it, he, his disciples are saying, what? Where are you getting that from? From the Bible? You apparently haven't read or haven't paid attention to. And by, so by the time Jesus has come, they've lost complete sight of the meaning of their sacrificial system, complete meaning of the Passover, complete meaning of Isaiah 53, other places in the Old Testament. They had decided, like the rest of the world, that the way you get to God is by being good. A man on the street question, anywhere in the world today, you ask a person, if they want to go to heaven, number one, yes. You think you're going to heaven? Yes. Why do you think so? Because I'm a good person. You find it in the Christian influence world here in the West. You find it in a Muslim world in the East. You find it in atheist worlds. If they even believe in such a thing as heaven, you find it in all, all religions. It's the, same, it's the same answer. More or less the same answer. Because I'm a good person. How, so how, do I, how does a person get there? You have to be good. What must I do to be right with God and having let me into his eternal kingdom? It's an important question, right? Well, Jesus answers this question with an incredibly simple story, and you would think, and it often is, the answer is convoluted. The answer is extrapolated. The answer takes tremendous religious conversation through people smarter than us, and that's typically what happens. But Jesus he answers very simply uh, with, listen, profundity, with clarity, with simplicity. He answers this question with this simple little story. Turns out it's not as complicated or convoluted as we thought. Uh, just very simply, you can make yourself righteous or you can't. Either you can or you can't. You can either uh, achieve righteousness that satisfies God or you cannot. It's either one or the other. And there's a huge division among all religions along these lines, and it's very old, and we'll see that. Either, either you can make yourself acceptable, or it has to be done for you if you're going to get to heaven. Either you can do it all by yourself, that's the Pharisee, or God has to give it to you, that's the tax collector. Either, either you can get to God by being good or you have to have it done for you. Either you can be convinced that you are good, at least better than most, 
and uh, for that reason you're too good for God to send you to hell? By the way, that's a large portion of quote-unquote Christians in our world today, in our Western world. Now, God wouldn't send me to hell. I'm too good. I'm too good. I know people who probably would, but it won't be me. It's the attitude. I'm too good. I'm too good. Uh, 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 I, I'm too good. He won't send me because I'm, I'm too good. I, and, and you, or, or on the other hand, you know for certain that you've qualified for hell and you throw yourself on God's mercy. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. It's not a Baptist thing. It's not a Methodist thing. It's not a Lutheran thing. It's not a Catholic thing. It is a Bible thing. It's one or the other. Whether you're good enough to do it yourself or you're not, <laughs> you've got to decide. And this is the simple division of every religion on the planet. Every religion, whether it has a huge following or whether it's these self-styled religions, you find a lot of people, I call it the, the religious buffet. They kind of go through and pick this, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this, a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of Taoism, a little bit of this, and, and they put it all in their tray and they go and check out, you know, the religious buffet. But, but here's, here's the thing, again, you ask them the same question, what is required for a person to go to heaven according to the way you think? And they, they will say, you have to be good. Of course, what else would they say? Would they say you have to be bad? No one, everybody knows better than that. But as, as much as being bad will never send you to heaven, neither will being good send you to heaven. See, it is the, it's, it's a very old, insidious lie. And it's sending people, it has been sending people to hell for hundreds and hundreds of years. That you could be good enough or that you can be good to get in. So with that answer, you can know immediately that they departed from the teaching of the scriptures and they left the track um, thinking that, that a person can make themselves right and go to heaven. They're just like this Pharisee here. Uh, the train, by the way, jumped the track way back there. At the gates of the Garden of Eden. Two boys, Cain and Abel, made decisions there. And those two decisions are the decisions that we're facing even today in this story, even today as we face the religious people out there who think they can be good enough. And here's, here's what happened. You're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, right? Adam and Eve had two sons. By the way, there's uh, demonstrating the scriptures, uh, there only, seems to be only one conception, but there's two kids, so it's possible these guys were twins. And I don't know if that bothered, you know, not, not that it matters. Uh, they're genetically exact, though, you can be sure of that. Whether they're, I am an identical twin, that's the reason why it's a big thing to me. So, so um, my brother and I are genetically exact. Um, if he commits a crime and they do the gene, I'll get caught. <laughs> oh, don't you dare. The weird, the weird thing is, is that our kids genetically are like half-brothers and sisters. They're not like cousins as far as the, the genetic distance, typically. Isn't that weird? That's what happens when you have identical twins. Anyway, so, so these guys, are, whether they're twins or not, are genetically exact because they come from the same father, and the father came, the father, the, the mother came from the father's rib, and so other than the XY chromosome, they're identical also. So isn't that, bi it's just some biology there for you just to think about for, I don't know why, but. So, so, so uh, the, the division comes in at a point of worship in which the two boys bring two different things, most importantly, for two different reasons. It's not what they brought as much as why they brought it that it's the big deal. So Abel brought a sacrifice of blood, right? Don't get caught up in that. 
I, I shouldn't say that. Blood is important here because it is, he, brings, he brings a lamb, and it's a sacrifice, but it's not so much what he brought as why he brought it that is the division. Don't you understand that? It's not what he brought. He, he brought the right thing, okay? That's not the big deal. The big deal is why he brought it, because here's why he brought it. And we find that interpretation all the way in the book of Hebrews. It says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. By faith, so what does that tell you? That says faith comes by hearing, and hearing through what? The word of the Lord. So what had he done? He had heard God say, this is what you're supposed to bring. He believed God. So I don't see how an animal sacrifice is going to make any difference, but because you're God, okay, smart boy, he brings. He doesn't look for a huge theological uh, explanation of the coming Messiah or none of that stuff. He just simply says, because God said it, that's, that's good enough for me, I'm going to do it. He brings it. His offering was accepted. His brother's offering was not accepted. Again, it's not because directly, particularly, because of what they brought it, because of why they brought it. So Abel brings the sacrifice, and he brings it because he had heard God say, and he was obedient to what God said. So do you think that Abel was the only one who heard that? You think God just came to Abel and says, by the way, bring a lamb, I'm not going to tell your brother. No. He'd heard the same story. In fact, God takes Cain aside and says, listen, if you will do what's right, you will be accepted. He says, but behold, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to have you, but you must master it, he says to Cain. Cain wasn't going to do it. Because Cain, what had he brought? He'd heard the same thing Abel had, but he brought a grain offering, something that he had produced himself, right? Because he thought God should accept the stuff that he brought. I have a right to be here, and I know that you said I'm supposed to bring that, but I've decided I'm going to bring this, and you have to accept me. And guess what? No, you're not. That's the same thing the Pharisee's doing. I'm good enough. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need grace because I'm better than most people. And so here I am, God. Aren't you glad I'm here kind of thing? Cain is the same thing. Cain brought what he wanted instead of what he was told as opposed to his brother Abel. He wanted his, his ideas accepted. He wanted his terms of peace accepted and listen to me, that is not going to happen. You don't make a deal. You hear people say this all the time. When I get up there, me and the man upstairs are going to make a deal. No, you're not. No, you're not. I, I don't think you, even a person like that is going to even have a conversation with the man upstairs. It's just going to be done. Just going to be done. He wanted his ideas accepted. He became, listen, the first person to bring to God his own deal. Instead of accepting God's, he brought his own. I know that's your plan, God, but here I've got a better plan than you do. You should accept this plan. Big mistake, an eternal mistake. Can't beat eternity, can you? So these two ways divided with these two boys, the way of Abel, doing what God says, believing God, even though you don't understand it, per se, I was eight years old when I accepted Christ. You think I understood all the theology I'm spitting out to you today? Oh, man. I just knew I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus. And my parents have been telling me that for eight straight years. <laughs> I finally got it by grace of God, and I believed it. And I humbled myself, and I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I didn't tell anybody because I had been baptized the year before because my brother had been baptized, and I didn't, you know, 
We were twins, and we got to do everything together. Well, that baptism, I just got wet for no reason. So I didn't want to say, well, you know, I really made a mistake. So I had to humble myself when I was in seminary as a 22-year-old, married already, and actually go through bab- water baptism, get the order right. So, we, you know, if you're preaching, saying you need to get the order right, and the preacher hadn't done that. Well, no, he has. He did. And so we have the division of these two religions. One is a religion of self. Got a lot of people out there who've got a religion of self. Here's the religion of self. It's, it's based upon human achievement. I'm a good person. It's based on self-righteousness. It, here's the most important thing. It seeks no mercy, seeks no grace, no forgiveness, no sympathy, sympathy, doesn't think that it needs it. And the religion of divine, as opposed to religion of self, the religion of divine accomplishment is where God provides your righteousness and where you absolutely seek grace and mercy and God's forgiveness. Which one are you? Which one are you trusting? Just like I said, it's not a Catholic thing, it's not a Baptist thing, it's not a Methodist thing, it's a Bible thing. You're either one or you are the other. And we have the same division in this story. The Pharisee, he's self-righteous, he seeks no mercy, he seeks no forgiveness or grace, he thinks he needs no sympathy, no health, he's self-exalted, and he goes home unjustified. And then you have the tax collector, who's a sinful outcast, he's standing far away, far as he can. Uh, he absolutely wanted mercy and grace. He was absolutely grief-stricken about his, uh, his lack of righteousness, and he goes home justified. He's forgiven. So you have two men, two postures, two prayers, two results. You've got to decide which one you are. So let's break down the parable. So, so this is addressed to anybody who thinks he's trusted in himself, he's self-exalted, and... Uh, and um, is therefore, is, is therefore righteous. Um, how, how did a person like a Pharisee who read and memorized the scriptures uh, believe what it said? How, how is it that a person like that could, could believe, uh, miss it so much? Um, how, how is that possible? Well, I don't know. Uh, that's exactly what it did. They, they've forgotten what this, what this says. And, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. They'd forgotten that. They thought, well, that's true for some people, but it's not true for me because I have been awesome my whole life. The Pharisees, listen, had no jobs. They had no jobs. They had no farms. They were professional religious people. They were religious all day long. They just, that's all they did. All they did was worship. All they did was pray. All they did was uh, uh, acts of righteousness out in the open. They saw themselves as examples. I'm setting an example for all these people. That's the reason why I'm standing at the front of the temple and praying so they can, everyone here can get a good look at what a real righteous man looks like. And maybe by the grace of God, they'll start acting right because I'm setting the example. That was their attitude. They thought it was a good thing. And so did everybody else. There's the man. Now, if you'll turn out like that, man, you're going to be just fine. And, and uh, no, uh, not necessarily. So, so, so how did they get to this place? Well, let me just say this to you. Don't underestimate pride and deception. Do not. It's powerful. Pride and deception can deceive the best. And they were among the best, and they had been deceived. Uh, again, the man on the street question, how do you get to heaven? Well, they had started answering the, same, the question the same way, by being a good person. By being a good person. And by the way, they were some of the best. Uh, the Jews had, had took uh, being good uh, further than most. They fasted, they prayed, they tithed, they memorized scripture, they invented laws to create further, a further appearance of holiness. 
And Jesus countered their extreme uh, religiosity with Matthew 5.20. I'm going to find it here. I'm not sure. kind of lost my place in my notes. Matthew. Nope. Hey, anyway, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Matthew 5.20. I'm not sure where my notes are. What is going on here? So the Pharisees saw themselves as the only good ones and the only ones going to heaven and everyone else they considered to be an outcast, a uh, person set aside. Literally the word that they used was the word, uh, literally interpreted the Greek is the word non-existent. They considered this tax collector, for instance, a person who effectively doesn't exist. He's already, as far as they're concerned, he's already in hell. There is no chance for him. He, it's just a matter of time until he dies, and then he'll spend all eternity uh, experiencing death over and over again in, in the place of hell. So, so, and by the way, it's the same word they use where it says here where Jesus quotes the scripture from the Old Testament, the stone which the builders rejected. It's the same word in Greek. Reject, not, not, just, not just we set it aside, but, but we consider it non-existent. We'll never come back to it. That's what they felt. They felt the same way about Jesus because they thought they were righteous. And of course, he's putting them parables like this that call into question the, the deep recesses of their, of their theology. Into the temple to pray, by the way, this happened twice a day. He says they go into the temple twice a day, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So it's two hours on either, three hours on either side of the morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. 6 a.m. was a morning sacrifice, so 9 o'clock you prayed. And then, um, and then 6 p.m. was an evening sacrifice, and so 3 p.m., you would pray. Standing and pray, by the way, this is, this is not necessarily a bad thing. You find a lot of people in the Bible, Old and New Testament, standing to pray. So just because he's standing to pray, it's not an automatic, oh, well, this is the wrong way to do it. I mean, you can stand to pray. There's not anything wrong with that. It, it's not so much his posture as much as the reason why he was doing it. He was doing it so, like I said, could get a good look at it. Here I am. I'm the best you're going to ever see. I'm the genuine article. You, if you're lucky, by God's grace, you're going to be like me. Jesus warned against this, and that's the word right here you have on the screen. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, is what he called them. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. This is all they're getting. All they're getting is that little warm fuzzy of knowing that they're better than most people. That's it. There's not going to be any greater, greater blessing. There's nothing else coming to them. And so his prayer, the Pharisee's prayer, he refers to himself five different times. I'm glad that I'm not like other people and that I don't do this and that I don't do that and I have this and I accomplish that. And he just simply is a proclamation of his superiority. And there's no prayer to God, really. He addresses God, but it's really about him. It says he speaks thus to himself, right? He gives God no praise. He only praises himself, no thanksgiving to God, really, because he's achieved it all himself. There's nothing to thank God for since I'm such a good guy. I thank you, God, that I am awesome, he says. Right? What was the guy's name, Mac Davis, out there? It's so hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Our West Texas boy. He, he asked no mercy. You don't hear it, do you? He asked for no grace. Oh, man, that ought to put a knife through your heart. You find somebody thinking that way, a person is doomed. No forgiveness, he asks for none. No help. I fast twice a week, where does he get that from? Not from the Old Testament. They invented that. The Old Testament prescribed only one fast a year, and it was the day before the ninth of the seventh month, which is 
Yom Kippur. They were to fast that day and then into the next day because that was the prescribed fast. And they had come to the place now during the time of Jesus where they fasted twice a week. And they did it on a, on, a, on a Monday and on a Thursday, two days either side of the Sabbath. So two days after, two days before the Sabbath. And the reason why they did it is because those were the market days. Those were the days that most people were in town and so they could get the best showing for who, how awesome they were. Look, this man, he's fasting. He's, he's a man of God. Isn't he awesome? Son, you need to be just like him. They did it. That was their profession. You're amazed at it. They thought they were right and so did everyone else. It was their profession. It was the way they operated. And again, Jesus counters this. Whenever you fast, not, he doesn't say don't fast. He just says he's expecting that you will. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, again, they have their reward in full. That's all they're getting for it. That little warm fuzzy they're filling. So, so the tax collector's prayer is the very opposite. And I'm sure you're pretty much familiar with the, the type of person a tax collector was. Are you? I know, you know, it's coming up tax season. You know, we got a month and a half. Is it Canada? Canada, is, is it April as well for y'all? Mm-hmm. And you pay 30% tax just like we do? <laughs> so, so typical Roman tax was 15%. You may think it's tough now, but it, I mean, it, it was easier to be a, in a Roman, a Roman subject. It's around 15%. And it didn't matter who you were, it was just a straight 15%, whatever income you had. So as a tax, first of all, as a tax gatherer, I'm working for the enemy. So I'm, the occupying force is the Romans. If I'm a Jew, I'm now working for that type of federal government. So you can you see immediately I'm not going to be liked. I, there's something about me that is not afraid to turn coat on my people. So first of all, for a good reason, they're extremely unliked. Secondly, the Romans set the, set the, set the mark at 15%, and the way that a tax director would make money is he would mark up a percentage point, or maybe two. So back to Paul. Sorry, Paul, you're always here. So Paul and his wife come to me for, for taxes, and, I, and Paul doesn't know. He's not connected with the Romans. In fact, he's against the Romans in all ways. And I say, Paul, you owe me 17% of your income, and so Paul has to write out a check. So I get 2% of that, but I get 2% of all of your incomes, you see? And by the way, let's say this year the washer and dryer go out and the wife wants to go on a trip, I don't know, to Baghdad or something. And so guess what I do? I raise it up another percentage. And there's no one to hold me accountable because the Romans don't care. There is no, the only thing I'm accountable for is that they get their 15%. And however much I take from you for my own salary, who are you going to complain to? Me? See, you're, I got you over a barrel. And so unless I'm a very scrupulous person and, and I'm very honest, this, is, this was, the, and by the way, I'm, I'm obviously not because just to take the job means I'm a turncoat. So I'm not afraid to, to um, rake you over the coals. And so that's exactly what they did. They were hated. They were absolutely hated. And so some of these are, you have the story here. Of course, you have Zacchaeus. Uh, you have John, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew, who's one of Jesus' disciples. I mean, they're, they're actually, uh, they're standouts in the New Testament as being people who, who actually understand what sin is, which is, which is amazing because they were, they were masterful sinners, to be sure. So, so he was an outcast of society. He even, is in the temple, it says he's standing on the fringe. He's way back in the back because he knows he's got no business being there. He won't even, won't even look towards heaven. The Pharisee, where is he? 
in the front setting the example, right? Standing up because I'm already near to God. He loves me. God's blessed because I'm alive. And so I want to make sure that that blessing pours out over all these people. So I'm going to stand up and pray publicly this way. He prays only to himself. Out loud, though. This guy prays directly, completely directly to God. And our Pharisee, like I said, is standing up there to the front. And of course, as we know, a sinner is a sinner. Sinner is a sinner. I mean, one is a tax collector. His sins are basically public. Everybody knows what he does. He's committed them all publicly. I mean, his stealing, his hatred, his usury, his, his adultery, idolatry, his Sabbath breaking, his blaspheming has all been done publicly. And he's not afraid to hide it, or hadn't been up until this point. The Pharisee's been doing careful to keep all his sins private. Because everybody knows, at least publicly, he's a great guy. But privately, we all know that he's just like us. So he's, he's stolen, but only from those who he deemed worthy of being stolen from because they're people who deserve it. It's kind of like the local Mexican mafia. My aunt was talking to a, a guy who she used to work in the prison system here in Texas, and one of the local guys she met who was in her caseload when he was in prison, and he was a part of the Mexican mafia down here on the border, and he was real upset. This has been 15 years ago. When this new wave of, of cartel movement started happening in Mexico and across the border here, and he was real upset because he said, ma'am, they kill anybody for any reason. He says, we only kill the people that needed killing. That's the way he justified himself. <laughs> okay, well, that's, I'm, I'm on down for that. Just the people that need to be killed. He, he only stole from those that needed to be stolen from, you understand. Pharisees only. He, he, he had never murdered except in his heart. It's okay to hate. Well, Jesus, of course, put a mark across that. He never committed adultery except in his mind. Of course, that's the same as adultery. Never committed idolatry, but, uh, but he marks up the price of his goods that he sells to the, to the travelers that come his way because they don't know any better. And he can do that because that's allowable. He's not cheating the Jews in, in his mind. So he's justified his sins, and he's hidden them carefully. But a sinner's a sinner, isn't it? Doesn't matter. God uncovers the sins. Doesn't matter if you've done them publicly. So we all know the ticket to hell only costs you one sin. Just one. The only way out of it is by God's grace. If God decides he's not going to be gracious to you, it's just too bad. He didn't understand that. Unlike the Pharisee, this, this tax collector prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His, his prayer is actually directed to God, not to anybody else standing there, and not to himself. And, and it's very interesting. He knows he's a big sinner. He knows it. And, and let, me, let me just underscore this also. It is such a grace of God to be informed about your sin. That is a grace of God. And, and for the people that you're dealing with and witnessing to, your loved ones, your friends who have never come to that grace, pray, come to faith in Christ. Pray, and, and, and nothing wrong with praying that they accept Jesus, but here, here's a more specific pray, prayer. Pray they understand their sin. Because that will drive a person to Christ. See, that's why you have in the order of Scripture, the Old Testament, which is the bad news, and then the New Testament, which is the good news. That's the order it has to come. You really can't get anybody to understand or really grasp onto the need for Jesus until they first understand they're sinners. Pray for the grace of God that they would understand, that they would grasp how, how desperate their situation is. That's the beauty. The beauty of this guy is that unlike the, unlike the other sinner there, the Pharisee, he understands his sin. He understands his sin. And I guess in the order of a list, he's probably done more than the, than the Pharisee, but again, it only takes one to get you there. He understands that. He understands his sin. And, and, and by the way, sin is a very intoxicating thing. The most intoxicating thing there is. So the more you do it, the more you don't know you're doing it. 
So they think they're righteous, because why? Because they, they, again, what does it take? It takes the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and so you're praying the Holy Spirit's work on their life. That is the way it happens. It's not, it's not enough just to preach to them. You're going to have, the grace of God needs to fall upon them, and it starts with understanding their sin. Blessed are the, what does Jesus say? The poor in spirit. We're all poor. Pharisee was poor in spirit, you just didn't know it, you see. He didn't believe it, couldn't make him believe it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they they, they, the grace of God has given the understanding that they're sinners. That's what they really need. I, I promise you, you find a person who really understands their sin, and you will not be able to keep them from Jesus. They're, they're looking for mercy and grace. The people that aren't looking, listen, there's uh, the, the real seekers, if, they're, uh, you know, if there's such a thing, it's because God has enabled them to see what their sin is really like. So, so here, here's, a, here's an interesting point I think we need to make here. The Pharisee and tax collector have similar theologies. Almost identical. Similar. Uh, both believed in the Old Testament and the revel- that was a revelation of God. They both were committed to the religious system of the Old Testament set up there by God. Uh, they both believed that, the, that God was creator, the Old, the Old Testament as, as he's demonstrated. They both revealed, believed that he revealed himself at Sinai to his people, Israel's people, Israel, the chosen people. They both believed this. They both believed in the sacrificial system that was established to cover their sins. They both believed and, and had faith that God was the true and living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they believe these things. They don't disagree on these issues. Most of these issues they agree on. They both believe God was a forgiving God. The Pharisee, listen, didn't believe he was sinless. Here, and here's the, here's the crux. Here's the turn. And it's a small turn, but it's enough to send you to hell. It's not that he didn't believe that he was a sinner. You ask the self-righteous person that you're witnessing to right now who doesn't believe he needs to accept Jesus or doesn't see a reason, doesn't see a reason why good people don't go to heaven. It's not because he, you ask him if he's perfect, what will he say? Of course I'm not. See, that's not his issue or her issue. It's not that they believe that they're perfect. They know better than that. They, they truly believe it in their hearts. The Pharisee didn't think he was perfect either, but here's the dif- difference. Listen carefully. He just believed that he had earned the right to be forgiven. That is the lie. That's the turn that sends you south. He he just believed that he had been good enough. I'm better than most. I deserve to be forgiven. See, that's the righteous person, seemingly self-righteous person, that you're witnessing to. He just doesn't believe God's going to throw a person like him in hell. He believes he's earned the right to be forgiven. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't understand forgiveness. He thinks he's earned it. I'm plenty good to be forgiven. Why would a person like me be thrown in hell? Look how much a blessing I've been on this earth. And maybe they have been. I said back to the, back to the issue of the Mormons. The problem with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness too is that they teach and believe a similar lie to this. You know, Mormonism in particular is considered a Protestant denomination by our United States government. You go in the military, and you may get a chaplain who's a Mormon. And by the way, you're going to find out that most of your theology agrees with each other, even down seemingly so to salvation. You ask a Mormon how a person is saved, and they, that this is what they will say to you. They will say, we believe that you're saved completely by grace. What? Yes, that's exactly what they say. That, that no person will be in heaven apart from the grace of God. Now, doesn't that sound Christian to you? Sounds very Protestant. 
But if you ask a further question, and here's the question, how can I be assured of heaven? They'll start giving you a list. You gotta be baptized, you gotta attend church, you gotta wear special pajamas underneath your clothes. You gotta, you gotta uh, not, not drink alcohol, not smoke, not, not do uh, caffeine, you know, all the list of stuff. You have to be married in an honorable way within the church. And, and they, they come up with this huge list and you say, now, wait a minute, it doesn't sound like grace, it sounds like works, and here's their answer. It's the same as the Pharisees. Here's the classic answer of the Mormon. Isn't it, isn't it awesome that God is so gracious that he allows us to earn our salvation? That is the Mormon answer. That is the old lie of Cain. We brought our stuff to God, and we're making him accept it because we're awesome. Like I said, Mormons are some of the best people. You want employees? I know a lot of Baptists they are, you know, I wouldn't hire. <laughs> I don't trust them. I forgive them, but I don't, I don't see anything in the Bible that says I gotta trust them. Uh, but Mormons are, you know, they, they have to be good, you see, because there is no other way for them. They have to be. It's hammered into them. They don't have, they hadn't been messed up with women. They hadn't been, or, or men, they haven't been off drinking. They haven't been off and getting, they don't have a drug habit. They don't have a criminal record. They don't have. They don't have. And on the Baptist church or evangelical churches, that's the kind, of, we're, we're looking for people like that. Those are people that are getting saved. We want them to trust Christ, but we can't get them a job because, man, they've got such a terrible record. But, um, but I guarantee you we can get them a place in heaven because God is offering that to them. When, when they say, it, uh, you know, like I said, it doesn't sound like grace, it's the same as Cain. I'm, I'm submitting, not submitting to God's way, and I'm going to give God my way, and he's going to accept it. That's the Mormon theology. That's Jehovah's Witness theology. It's not, not that most of the stuff they believe you agree with. Most of the stuff, even down to a lot of the language. But when you get down to the definition of the language, you've got something altogether different. So, so here, what Galatians has to say, Paul's speaking to the same issue. Because he's got a Galatian church or churches that he's been witnessing to, and they've been saved, and they've been baptized, and they've been on the right, right path. And then along comes these Judaizers who come in and start saying, yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus, and... You gotta be circumcised, you gotta observe the months, you gotta do the, the, the you gotta meet on Saturday, you gotta have da 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 da. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like grace. Sounds like works. That's exactly right. So if Jesus was enough, why do I need to add all these things? Apparently, Jesus isn't enough then. So what it comes down eventually is I don't need Jesus anymore because I'm doing my own thing, you see. All good stuff, all religious stuff. It's, it's, I'm a better person for society, I'm more hireable. I'm probably a good candidate for, for office somewhere because I don't have a criminal, you know, all these things, but you know what? It won't get you in heaven. Paul says, here, some of the strongest language in the New Testament. Whole Bible, really. It, even if we are an angel from heaven, by the way, that's where Mormons got their religion from. Joseph Smith supposedly spoke to an angel. So the Muslims got it from angels. Notice what Paul says. Even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That it, it, it's, uh, here's the easiest way to say it. He is to go straight to hell. That's what he says. Very strong language. Notice he's not just saying, a poor misunderstood person, he just needs to get his act together. No. 
Doctrine of demons, sending people to hell, and he needs to go straight to hell, Paul says. As we have said before, so we say again, if any man is preached to, if, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Hell, listen, will be full of sincere people. Pharisee was very sincere. Mormons are very sincere people. Had great friends, good buddies in high school. They were Mormons. They were better than most Baptists. They really were. But watch this. By the works of the law, no flesh, you got flesh? You're eliminated. Will be justified in his sight for through the law. The law doesn't help you. It just tells you that you can't be helped. Just tells you that you're a sinner. It doesn't do anything else for you. It can't clean you up. Paul reiterates this in Galatians, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, imputed righteousness. Even we have believed in Christ, who believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by, he says it again, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You can't do it. There is not an offering of righteousness that you can bring that God will accept. It doesn't exist. The different runs, like I said, runs all the way back to Cain and Abel. Uh, uh, runs through the story of the rich young ruler. He comes and says, what must I do to go to heaven? He, he already thinks he's going. He just wants to know if there's any more things. I just want to make sure I got all my check marks, you know. Got all my boxes. I want to, Rabbi, I want to know if you, good teacher, if you can add one more thing, because I've kept all the laws of God from my youth. And we know he hadn't. Like I said, he's probably very hireable, probably a really good guy. Doesn't have a criminal record, doesn't have any drug problems, hasn't been running around with any weird girls or nothing like that. But at the same time, how many sins does it take to get in? And so when Jesus says, okay, just go sell all you have, he, he uncovered his sin right there. Couldn't do it. So you have here in this story, one thought he could please God on his own and the other who knew he couldn't. And that is the divide. That's the divide. So Jesus says, I tell you, notice he can't quote the rabbis here, he can't say, well, they tell you. He says, listen, I tell you. Unfortunately, they had completely departed from what the scriptures taught. He says, I tell you, this one goes home justified, and the one you thought would did not. It's completely antithetical to all world religions, not just Judaism. Completely antithetical. Absolute scandal. The extreme sinner can be pronounced instantly righteous without any works or merit or even moral or religious acts at all. No penance, no works, no ceremony. How? The righteous God, listen, requires perfect righteousness. He knows you can't earn it, and so he will give it to you if you will believe that he is the gracious and throw yourself on his mercy. Throw yourself on his grace. See, that's what, Jesus, that's what God has done for us through his son Jesus. He's brought the avenue through which his grace and mercy can come so that your sins can be paid for and you, the sinner, don't have to pay for them. Because that's the thing. Either, either your sins are going to be paid for. So either you pay for your sins forever and eternal in hell or Jesus pays for them. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. So, so but, but again, that is Scandalous to most people's thinking in almost all world religions. Absolutely scandalous. So it will be, whoever exalts himself in this life, what is that? I'm a good enough person. I've been good enough. God would not throw a person like me in hell. That person will be humbled forever. 
On the other hand, a person who humbles himself in this life, I'm not good enough and I have to have the mercy of God and I can't make it any other way, that person will be exalted forever. Forever is a long time. Those headed to hell, listen, think the typical hell-bound person in the world today, even in our churches, think they're going to heaven. That's a scary prospect, isn't it? Whereas it's the opposite is true. The ones that are headed to heaven, listen, the ones that are headed to heaven know that it's a gift, that it's by grace. They know they don't deserve it. They know it can't be earned. They know it. Those headed to hell seek, seek God's according to this story. Those headed to hell are seeking God's commendation here on the earth. And those headed to heaven seek God's forgiveness. That's the divide. That's the divide. So there you go. We'll stop right there. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, speaking to us. We thank you, God, for your great grace. We pray, God, for discernment to see the difference between that which is real and that which isn't. We ask you, God, for, first of all, an understanding of our own sin and what we've been forgiven for and of. And we pray, God, also for your spirit to work on those that we would come to our mind even right now that we're praying for in our family among our friends, maybe even our spouses who, who think they're good enough and they may be good people as far as our standards are concerned. But Lord, they so much need to understand their sin so that they can understand their need for a Savior. Thank you, Lord, for being that Savior for us. Help us to be the bearers of your light in the most dark places. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.